The church needs to be a model and an advocate for healthy marriages. And this starts by rediscovering the biblical teaching on marriage, that marriage is a sacred institution ordained by God to be an image of the union between Christ and his church. You're listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Visit us at holyjoys.org to find more resources for a holy, happy church. Well, this morning, I want to continue our series on union with Christ. Union with Christ. We began, if you recall, by looking at 1 Corinthians 1.30 and how God has connected us to Christ. He has placed us in Christ. He's made a real spiritual connection between us and his son, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And if we're connected to Christ, then all of the blessings that God has for us flow to us through Christ. Christ becomes to us righteousness, sanctification, wisdom from God, and so forth. And then last week... We began looking at the biblical metaphors or images for this union with Christ. What does it mean to be spiritually united to Christ? That's a a spiritual mystical reality that we can never fully comprehend. And so God gives us metaphors and images that we can understand something of this spiritual reality. And we began with John 15 and the metaphor of the vine and the branches as life flows from the vine to the branches. Spiritual life flows from Christ to believers who are grafted into him. If you cut a branch off of a tree, that branch is going to die and all the fruit on that branch is going to wither. But if that branch is connected to a life-giving tree, then it's going to bear much fruit. And so it is with Christ and the believer. And this morning, we're going to move on to the next metaphor or image for union with Christ, the union of a husband and wife in marriage. One of the major images of union with Christ in the Bible, perhaps arguably the greatest of all, is that of a husband and a wife in marriage. And you can remain seated because we're going to read two fairly lengthy portions of scripture here at the beginning of this message. But I would ask you to please turn and follow along in your Bibles. We're going to be beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And Paul is going to quote here from Genesis chapter 2, which Brother Joe read earlier in the service. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. I want to pause here and pray because uh, I need and I feel very deeply the need for God's help this morning. I come as one who needs to learn how to be a better husband, not as somebody who has it all figured out. Marriage is hard. It's easier when you have a great wife like Lexi, but it's still hard. Life is hard. Life is hard and and it's hard when you're two different people and you're trying to navigate life together. And so I trust you're going to be gracious towards me as I do my best to explain and apply God's word this morning so that we can all be helped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come asking for your gracious help. Your word says many hard things, but you always supply the help and the grace needed to obey. And you provide also the forgiveness to cleanse us when we don't obey. Will you help us to be a church that treasures, advocates for healthy marriages? And may we do this not for the same reasons that the world does it, but for something far deeper in order that we might be a living image of Christ and his church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that in the beginning, God created a single man, Adam. But Adam was without a bride. And so God put Adam to sleep, and from a wound in his side, God formed a woman, Eve. This is strange. We're going to talk a little bit about why God did it this particular way. 
But Eve was a part of Adam's body. She had her very life and existence from him. And so it was fitting that these two should then come together and become one flesh in marriage. Now, one flesh, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6, includes the one flesh union of human sexuality. But it's not limited to that. It includes that whole sharing and blending of lives in which two individuals come together and share all of life and their own being and their own deepest selves with one another. This is something that God ordained and that God declares. But the question is, why marriage? Why was it necessary for Adam to have a bride? Now, you might say, well, the Bible says, right, it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. But Jesus Christ was not alone. Paul, the apostle, was not alone. They had many friends. They had the church. Jesus was the most whole and fulfilled human being to ever live. And so God could have created a friend for Adam. He didn't have to answer the problem of man's aloneness by giving him a bride. Why a bride? Why marriage? Well, the New Testament gives us the reason. First of all, in Romans 5.14, Paul explains that Adam was, from the very beginning, a type of the one who was to come. Romans 5.14 says that from the beginning, Adam was, quote, a type of the one who was to come. We call Jesus sometimes the second Adam. From the very moment that Adam was formed of the dust of the ground, Adam was a type of Jesus Christ, the one who was to come, the one who would be made man, who would be made Adam, man, the Hebrew word for man, for us and for our salvation. Jesus was appointed before Adam was created. Jesus was appointed as the Savior of the world before it was created. Ephesians tells us this. But this is the key point. Before the foundation of the world, God did not just choose his son to be Savior. He also chose his son to have a bride. And Ephesians 1.4 tells us that the church was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Eve comes into existence and marriage is ordained by God in Genesis in order to be a type or an image of the union of Christ in his church in God's eternal plan. This is what Ephesians 5 tells us. It says this is a profound mystery. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, in, a, in the Bible, a mystery isn't just some confusing thing that we can't understand. You know, sometimes we say something like, uh, it's a mystery to me. It's confusing. But in Colossians 1.26, Paul writes of the mystery hidden four ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. See, in the Bible, a mystery is something in God's plan that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. 
And so the mystery in Ephesians 5 was something that was hidden to the Old Testament saints, something that Abraham and Moses didn't understand. And that is that in Genesis 2, way back there at the beginning, when God said the two shall become one flesh, it was even then a God-ordained sign of the union of Christ and his people. The Old Testament saints didn't understand the real spiritual meaning of human marriage. But in the gospel, in the New Testament, when the second Adam is revealed out of heaven and Jesus purchases for himself a bride, the mystery is revealed. You know what God did with his son? He put him to sleep. He put Christ to sleep. Jesus, the second Adam, slept the sleep of death. There was a wound in his side as he was pierced by the spear. And out of his side flowed the blood that would give life to his bride, the church, the new Eve. The church is a part of Christ. We are his body. There's a reason why Paul weaves together the body image with the marriage image here in this passage in Ephesians 5. And it's fitting that we be joined to Christ through the Holy Spirit and become not one flesh with him, but one spirit with him. The union of a man and a woman, that one flesh union. In fact, sex itself was ordained by God to be a very vibrant picture of the intimate union that God desires with his people through the Holy Spirit. And this is important to understand because Paul makes clear that it wasn't like God sent Jesus and united a people to him and then said, "Mm, I need a good illustration of this. How about marriage? That will do. But Paul says that in Genesis, when God said the two shall become one flesh, that even then it referred to something future. The union of Christ and his people was always God's plan, and he created an ordained marriage in order to be an image and a picture of that union. We as believers now know that the one flesh union of marriage was created by God to be an image of the one spirit union of Christ and his bride, the church. And that is why the church should have an even higher view of marriage than the Old Testament saints. We realize or should realize just how much is at stake. Jesus said to the Jews in Matthew 19, 7 through 9, he said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus put an end to his people's toleration of divorce, their indifference towards divorce. And I believe that he did that in part because he was coming to fulfill the reality to which marriage had always pointed. Divorce should be unthinkable for Christians, except in extreme circumstances. In fact, the Bible only gives us two instances in which divorce may be acceptable. 
First of all, this passage in which we read, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, some think that this means that sexual immorality may be acceptable grounds for divorce, and I think that that is a reasonable reading of this passage, though others would read it differently. And so it may be acceptable in the case of sexual immorality to divorce one's spouse. And I think 1 Corinthians 6 sheds some light on that because when you go and have sex with somebody who is not your spouse, you join yourself to them in a way. And so it's as if you have rejected and denied that one flesh union that God has established. The second reason is in 1 Corinthians 7, and that is if you have a spouse who's not a Christian and they walk out on you and leave you and won't live with you, then it may be acceptable to get divorced. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And some people think that this means that the believing spouse is not enslaved in the sense that they have to stay married to this person who has left them. Others would say that in context, it means they aren't bound to continue trying to win that person to the Lord. But again, I think the first reading is definitely possible. It's tenable. And then I would just add thirdly, that if someone is being abused, they should separate for their safety and the safety of their children, okay? But outside of those reasons, the Bible gives us no grounds on which divorce may even be acceptable. These words of Jesus are hard to hear. The words of Jesus are often hard to hear, but they're always good for us if we understand them. It's like medicine, which tastes bad, Recently, Adam was sick and we had to try to give him medicine. I finally gave up. I don't know if we got an ounce down, maybe, but uh, probably not even that much. It It was hard. Medicine tastes bad, but it's good for us. And the words of Jesus, we need to hear afresh and anew. In a generation when nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. The divorce rate is lower in the church, but not by a lot. And that's a tragedy. Marriage and the marriage vows mean less today than they ever have. There was a day when, by and large, even people who weren't really believers were married in churches by ministers in the presence of God and many witnesses with with traditional vows that had been passed down by generation after generation and reflected the biblical expectations for husbands and wives. It was viewed as a binding public vow that dare not be broken. And there were witnesses there to ensure that you did it. But today we see and reflected in marriage ceremonies, the degradation and the undervaluation of marriage, people being married outside the context of the church, without ministers, without regard for God, with few, if any, witnesses, and with vows that they've written themselves and don't amount to much more than shallow sentiment. The church needs to be a model and an advocate for healthy marriages. And this starts by rediscovering the biblical teaching on marriage, that marriage is a sacred institution ordained by God to be an image of the union between Christ and his church.
When we get married, it is for life. There is no off-ramp. Because what we do in marriage is a reflection of what we believe about Christ and the church. Now, before I move on to my last point, I want to say one more thing about infidelity and divorce. It's forgivable. It's forgivable. If anyone does sin, there is forgiveness and restoration. God is merciful. God forgives adultery. God forgives divorce. Even the great King David committed adultery and God forgave him and washed him white as snow. A person doesn't need to live with guilt and shame over this or any other sin for the rest of their life if they turned to Jesus, asked him for forgiveness, and submitted themselves to Galatians 6, the gentle restoration of the church. Jesus shed his blood to cover all sins. And Jesus was the only perfect spouse. The only perfect bridegroom. And Christ's righteousness will cover the unrighteousness of marital infidelity and divorce. But I think our earnest desire as Christians should be for our marriages to be a living drama of the union of Christ and his church. Ephesians 5 explains that in the marital drama, the husband represents Christ as he sacrificially gives himself to his wife. And the wife represents the church as she lovingly submits herself to her husband. Now that word submit is the one that trips us up because there have been a lot of controlling and abusive husbands. But let's just pause there for a minute because I want us to be really clear on what the Bible does and does not actually say. First of all, we need to remember this in its context. In a context in which husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. How did Christ love the church by giving himself up for her? He died. He was crucified. Husbands die is a more extreme and radical command than wives submit. We've got the harder part because he went to the cross for his bride. He shed his blood for his bride. And furthermore, this dying is itself a kind of submission. You don't die for someone else unless you submit your life to theirs, unless you submit your desires and your preferences to their own. And so husbands, too, are called to submit only in a different and distinct way. In fact, Ephesians says, and the New Testament bears out, that we are to submit to one another in love. On a daily basis, a loving Christ-like husband is going to have to submit his desires and preferences to those of his wife. He's going to have to seek her good, even at great cost to himself. That's what Jesus did. A husband who is a big, harsh jerk and says, submit, woman, is missing it in a big way. A guy who says, I'm the head of the home, is dramatically misrepresenting Jesus. And there should be no toleration for that in the church. If Jesus washed feet, certainly husbands can wash some dishes. And all the ladies said, 
Amen. If the exalted Lord of heaven and earth, after his resurrection, cooks fish over the charcoal fire for his disciples, surely husbands can cook a meal once in a while. And maybe the women said, I don't want him to cook. (laughs) And maybe that's okay. Every home looks different, right? Every home looks different. But the point is, is that for far, far too long, for far too long in human history, women were treated like doormats instead of equals. Every time I talk about this, I get this picture in my head of an old Van Heusen tie announcement. An old Van Heusen tie announcement where he's wearing a Van Heusen tie and he's tucked in bed and his wife's on her knees in a beautiful dress and high heels with his breakfast in front of him. And it says, it's a man's world. It's a man's world. Now, every man wants breakfast in bed once in a while, but so does every woman, right? And for far too long, these passages have been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied to mistreat women. And God has no toleration for that. If we really understand Ephesians 5 and God's plan for marriage from the beginning, then we'll realize that the biblical ethic is actually beautiful and desirable and good for both men and women. Matthew Henry said, the woman was made from Adam's side, not from his feet to be stomped on and ruled over, not from his head to rule over him, but from his side to be cherished and treasured and nourished as his own flesh. Because as the church is the body of Jesus, so the wife is the body of the husband. And the way that we treat our wives affects us too. And only a fool is going to mistreat his wife because he's going to have a miserable life. Or he's at least going to miss out on the treasures of having a mutually giving, loving, respectful relationship. Now, I want to say that on the other hand, wives submit does mean something, right? I hear a lot about what this doesn't mean, very little about what it does mean. And I I do believe that on the authority of God's word in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, that men do represent Christ's headship in marriage. And I, I can't get into all of that this morning, but I'll say this much. As long as a husband isn't asking his wife to do something unbiblical, because we always obey God rather than men, okay, even in marriage, as long as a husband isn't asking his wife to do something unbiblical, a wife's respect for and submission to her husband is a good thing, and it's a beautiful picture of the church's submission to Jesus. It pleases God, and it's good for marriage. And this is true even if our spouse isn't a Christian. That's, that's hard, but 1 Peter 3 says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that's the word of God. So he's talking to wives who might have husbands who aren't believers, that they might be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, I have met living, breathing examples of this. God's wisdom is always greater than man's wisdom. We need to trust in the word of God, even when we think we have a better way. Paul goes on to say, do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I don't believe that women have to be little church mice. I don't believe that women can't speak up. Okay, Deborah, who led God's armies into battle, and J.L., who was praised as the most blessed of women for driving a tent peg through Sisera's head, probably weren't mousy women. That's not what this means, because men too are told to have a meek spirit. This is saying uh, not somebody who's controlling and boisterous and domineering and harsh and mean, but somebody who has that gentle and quiet spirit, respectful, which is in God's sight very precious, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They used to, much more the case today, is it not? Where women are told that in order to be truly free, in order to truly be happy, they've got to assert themselves against men. To the point now where I think sexism in some ways is turning around, where men are demonized and men are beat down. We're worthless and women don't need men. We're living in a very different day. But God says through him, this is the word of the Lord, that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves this way by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, again, Sarah was not a doormat. Just read Genesis. She was quite the woman, and sometimes it got her into a lot of trouble, okay? So again, that's not what we're talking about here, but we're just talking about respectfully following our husband's lead within reason, within the bounds of what Scripture tolerates, okay? And as a wife does that, as she lovingly submits herself to her husband, she faithfully represents Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, that means physically weaker. It's not every woman is weaker than every man. I can take you to some women who could really beat me up if they wanted to. There are some pretty strong women. But overall, biologically, genetically, it's just simple fact, scientific fact, that women are generally weaker than men. It's why we're making a mockery of of women's sports by allowing biological men to participate in them today. It's just a fact that women are physically weaker, and so there is a danger that the husband will be physically domineering over his wife and control her and take advantage of her because of his biological advantage. This doesn't mean women are weaker intellectually, by any stretch of the imagination. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There is a fundamental equality in Christ, so much so that in Galatians says that in Christ, there is no male or female. There's no spiritual advantage to being a man or a woman. We are equal in Christ. The one flesh union of marriage was created by God to be an image of the one spirit union of Christ and his bride, the church. God ordained this before the foundation of the world. And our marriages are a living drama of the relationship between Christ and his people. As a husband sacrificially gives himself to his wife, he faithfully represents Jesus 
And as a wife lovingly submits herself to her husband, she faithfully represents the church. This is a profound mystery. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.